Now, dear congregation, first of all, let me uh, say how good it is to be back with you. I bring you greetings from my mother, and uh, she remembers you all, and uh, I thank you for all your prayers for Chris and I as we traveled and visited her these past two weeks. Uh, how good it is to be back with you all, and I'm very grateful and thankful. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And uh, I'm taking my subject this morning as spiritual assessment from these two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3. But we won't read all the chapters. We'll just read, first of all, verse 8 of chapter 2 through verse 11 to the church in Smyrna. This is a good church, so I want to read uh, about the church in Smyrna, and then we will go to chapter 3 and the church in Sardis in verses 1 through 6, which has a lot of problems. So, first of all, to the church in Smyrna, verse 8 of chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then, if you'll turn to chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars... I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we desire to listen to your word, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us as we seek to understand these great passages in the book of Revelation. Give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear and to believe. So we thank you for your word and ask your blessing upon the preaching of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I've been uh, giving you a few messages so far in the uh, book of Revelation, 
And what I've been trying to do is to give them to you from a broad perspective. Almost as if I'm taking an aerial shot of the book of Revelation. Personally, I think this is the right way to start any examination of this great and complicated book. So, if you're down among the trees and you start among the trees, you really don't see much that is around you except the trees that are so close to you. But if you look from above, you see the forest. And that's what I'm trying to do. I want you to see, if you can, uh, the big picture, because I think that's very helpful before we ever start to examine in minute detail all that we find in this great book of Revelation. So this morning I want to consider with you the subject uh, of spiritual assessment. Every one of us, I know, at some time or another in your life has taken an examination, has taken a test. Might be a variety of tests over the years. Whatever it is, every one of us has taken those tests or exams. The thing about tests and the thing about exams is they are designed to achieve or to see whether you uh, demonstrate proficiency in a number of things. First of all, what is your knowledge like? So the first thing a test does or an exam does is test your knowledge. The second thing that an exam or a test does is to test your ability. Generally speaking, our abilities are connected to our knowledge. If you know a lot about something, hopefully you'll be able to practice what you say you know. So when we give exams or take exams, these are the two things that are being looked at. Your knowledge of the subject matter, whatever it might be, and your performance or your ability to do that which you say you know. So those are the two criteria, and both of them belong together. And any success in examination or in testing any competency levels are found, of course, when your knowledge translates into your ability, your doing of what you say you know. So this is all about doing well what you say you know. It's about knowledge that leads to application. Now some people, you know, just have knowledge and are completely incapable or unable of translating that into the doing of it. They just can't do that. And that's not what they need to know. They need to know, based on what they know, that they can do what they say they know. Now you experience that and I experience that every day in our lives. For instance, I have a little knowledge of electricity. But Chris might tell you that my knowledge of electricity is exceedingly dangerous. Because the ability to transfer that knowledge into the doing, the connecting of wires, might lead to an explosion of some kind or another. In other words, my knowledge is not enough to be an electrician. I can look at wires and connect colors. I'm very good at that. But who knows whether they're right or whether they're wrong. So you can see that you can know certain things, but it might not be enough the knowledge you have to perform what you ought to be able to perform competently or to uh, the levels that are desired. So an examination or a testing is really an assessment of your abilities, of your skills, of your knowledge, the levels, what you know and what you can do or cannot do. The Bible, as you know, 
from a spiritual perspective, perspective, exhorts every one of us to do the same thing, to take a spiritual examination. For instance, the memory verse for this month, the month of April, Lamentations 3.40, says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us test ourselves. Let us examine ourselves. You remember how the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are what? In the faith. Test yourselves. So the Apostle Paul says to these Corinthians, look, there is the faith. What do you know about the faith? Do you know the faith? Can you articulate the faith? So he's asking them to examine their knowledge of what it means to be in the faith. Or to put it another way, are you actually in the faith? Test yourself. He says to the Galatians, let each one of us test his or her own work. I put my abilities, what I'm supposed to do, based on my knowledge to the test as well. He tells the Thessalonians, Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And one of the things we've just done this morning in coming to the Lord's table from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 28 is let a person examine himself or herself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The eating and the drinking of the elements on the Lord's table are prefaced by self-examination testing myself, am I worthy to eat and to drink? We call that spiritual examination. George Herbert, one of the Puritans, said that knowledge is but folly unless it is guided by grace. And I like that. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the best way to test yourself is always to look under the surface, to look into yourself, to examine your heart, your mind, that which others cannot see and cannot know about. So spiritual assessment is really a spiritual inspection, an examination, and it's crucial and it's critical, it's apparent from the the Bible. So when we come to Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, what do we find? We find that Jesus himself is making a spiritual assessment of seven churches, the churches of Asia Minor. He is inspecting those churches in the first century. He examines them, he puts them to his test as to whether they pass or fail, we find revealed in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so Jesus is examining his churches. And what we discover when Jesus makes this examination that he uses Similar criteria as I've just spoken to you, knowledge and the doing of what you know. And so, you'll talk about things like, I know your works. I know what you do. And he'll urge them, some of them, to repent, remember, go back to the beginning, and so on. And we mustn't miss these two elements in what Jesus says, this element of knowledge and this element of performance or ability. So, let's remind ourselves from chapter 1 in the book of Revelation that this book of Revelation is first of all and above all a prophecy. We say it's a prophecy, but we recognize within it 
because a prophecy is sometimes a foretelling and a forthtelling, but there are also apocalyptic aspects to the book of Revelation that uh, prophecy sometimes has and sometimes doesn't have. When you read the book of Revelation, you are confronted with all of these images, with all of these symbols, with all of these numbers, and you ask yourself, what does it mean? That's the kind of literature we're dealing with. But by and large, in the big scheme of things, chapter 1, verse 3, tells us that this is the word of prophecy. And you can read the same in chapter 22. This is a word of prophecy. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written. And so as John receives this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is told that those who hear it and those who keep it or do it, that they are the ones who are truly blessed. It is a prophecy to seven churches. The book of Revelation is for the seven churches. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we just look at chapter 2 and chapter 3 and we isolate the seven seven churches by themselves and from chapter 4 all the way to the end, well, that's for somebody else. No. This is a prophecy written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, written by the Apostle John. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 11... Jesus instructs John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So this book, this book of Revelation, this prophecy, is to be written by John, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And notice the language that the Apostle John uses here that marks this out as a prophecy. For instance, verse 11, write what you see. And if you look at verse 2 of chapter 1, it says that John bore witness even to all that he saw. So you see this language of seeing, write what you see, John bore witness to what he saw, that this is prophetic language. And how do I know that? Because when you read the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah for instance, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He had this vision of God. Or what about Ezekiel? The Bible tells us specifically, I saw visions of God. Or what about Amos? Amos, what do you see? I see a plumb line. I see this. I see that. The language in all of the the, uh, prophets in the Old Testament is marked by the vision experience, by what they see spiritually, what is given to them, and they see spiritually with their eyes. And so this is what we find in the book of Revelation. That this is what John is seeing because he is given a vision and therefore we believe this of course to be a prophecy, let alone the fact that the book calls itself a prophecy. So John is given this revelation. But it's not a revelation for himself. It's a revelation to seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. To those seven churches, by the way, who are in one region, Asia Minor, not separated by great distance, who no doubt knew each other and met with each other at some time or another, because their distance separating them is not great at all. In fact, they are, it would appear, on some sort of postal route. And so you go from the one down to the next and so on, and you complete the circle and you get to all the seven churches. 
So the Lord gives this prophecy to the Apostle John, and John was to record what he saw, the things that were shown him. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 19, you'll see what Jesus says. He says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that, uh, sorry, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. In other words, this is a comprehensive revelation. Deals with the past, deals with the present, deals with the future. It deals with the, the past, the things that you have seen. It deals with the present, the things that are. deals with the future, the things that are to take place after this. And all of this is given to John to then give to the seven churches, as we read here in chapter 2 and chapter 3. I think this is a very important point for us to remember or to remember for yourselves whenever you read the book of Revelation. That this is a prophecy that is written by the Apostle John, a prophetic word given to John by Jesus himself to be given to the seven churches. And we must not, as a result of that, take all current day events, which people have been doing for a long, long time, and put them into the book or into the context of the seven churches, the prophecy that is made to them. There's great danger in doing that. Let's not read current day events into the book of Revelation and make the book of Revelation speak to the current day events. I'm convinced, of course, it does speak to the churches at large. There's no question, because the spiritual conditions of churches can be found in the spiritual conditions of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. We also know that what our Lord Jesus says to each of the churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and so on, He really is giving it to all of them. Because the language says that let all who hear what the Spirit, let all hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you go through each church and you find that similar injunction given, chapter 2, verse 7, 11, 17, 29, chapter 3, 6, 13, and 22, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So they are all to hear what has been said. In other words, when we sit here 2,000 years later, the real question is, what can I learn from what was written 2,000 years ago for seven churches. Any prophecy, I think, when you read the prophets, Old Testament and John, uh, in the book of Revelation, require a number of responses. For instance, you need to be careful, and I need to be careful when I read prophecy. Not only that, but I need to be discerning, and I need to be restrained. Because people read all fanciful kinds of interpretations into the book of Revelation, let alone Old Testament prophetic books. And above all of those responses, be obedient to what Jesus says. So when we come to the study of the seven churches, this is what is in, uh, impressed upon us. A careful consideration, discernment, restraint, and obedience as we look at what Jesus says to the seven churches. All prophecy then is simply a call to learn and keep and to understand and do. Just what I've been saying, knowledge and performance. And let me show you how Jesus says that in chapter 22. So turn over to chapter 22, Revelation 22, 6 and 7. 
So in Revelation 22, verse 6 and 7, And he said to me, Jesus says to John, verse 6 of chapter 22, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So notice that all prophecy is simply a call. The book of Revelation is a call to learn, a call to keep, a call to understand, and a call to do what Jesus says. And according to chapter 1 and verse 3, there's a blessing for all those who hear and who keep or who do what Jesus says. So Revelation, the book, is a prophecy to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 1, it concerns the things that must soon take place. And there's an urgency about that, Jesus says, because in verse 3 of chapter 1, at the end of verse 3, He says the time is near. So He tells the churches that there are things that are soon to take place, and they are going to take place soon because the time is near. So this revelation from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 22 verse 22 is the word of Jesus to these seven churches. But the interesting thing about this is it's not just a corporate word, it's an individual message to each church. So it's a message to Ephesus and a message to Smyrna. To each specific church is a specific message by Jesus himself. What is that message? That message is, in a nutshell, a spiritual assessment of the condition of each individual church. An examination by Jesus. And when I was thinking about that, it struck me, I wonder, what assessment does Jesus make of us this morning as a church? What assessment, what examination does Jesus have for us to test us, to see about us. How would he assess Bethel today? We should think about that. Because, you know, generally speaking, we measure ourselves, don't we? How am I doing? What's my spiritual life like? Am I measuring up? Am I walking in the way of the Lord? Am I being obedient? Am I doing the right thing? Am I dealing with sin? We do that for ourselves. We examine ourselves individually. But Jesus is not doing that with the individuals per se of these churches. He's looking at the church at large. The church in Ephesus. The church in Smyrna. And He makes an assessment about the church. And within the church is a whole variety of people. Some are faithful and some are not. And Jesus puts it all together. And he appraises that church with all of that mixture and he makes his pronouncements about those churches. What would Jesus say about us? What does the Lord think of your life? And my life? If you can answer that question, well, I need to make some corrections, then that's exactly what you need to do. That's precisely what Jesus would be looking for. You see what he says, you feel conviction, 
you respond to it. That's what Jesus is doing with the seven churches. He is exposing their failures. He's exposing their weaknesses. He's showing them, and he's inviting them, he who has ears to hear, hear what I'm saying, and do something about it. So, Revelation 2 or 3 is written to the whole church, the church in Ephesus, church in Smyrna, and so on. You can see that when you look at each of the churches as you find them in chapter 2. Now, will you notice, for instance, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, and so on. You can go through all the all the churches, and the same things are said. The only difference is the location. To the angel of the church in whatever, right. So we ask ourselves the question, obviously, who are these angels? Who are these angels that John is told to write to? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write to them. Well, frankly, the identity of who these angels are is not at all clear, is it? In fact, that's one of the questions everybody always seems to ask about the angels of the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3. Who are they specifically? Now, will you notice, first of all, in chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So what does John see when he hears this voice? He sees seven golden lampstands. Look at verse 16. Chapter 1. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face shining like the sun in full strength. Now go to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, because now you're asking yourself, well, who are these seven golden lampstands, and who are the seven stars? So John is given by Jesus the answer. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So now we know that the seven stars are symbols, are symbolic of the seven angels. And notice that each each church, by the way, has its individual angel. To the angel in Ephesus, or the church in Ephesus, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and so on. So that each church has a particular individual angel. Now, angel, of course, the word simply means a messenger. The book of Revelation, by the way, is loaded with angels. I think there's some 60 to 70 references to angels in the book of Revelation. They're everywhere. Angels are, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, God's messengers, God's ministers, who are sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So this is what the angels uh, do, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. God's ministers. Well, when I look at, at these angels, the seven angels here of these seven churches, I think it's unlikely that the individual angels are actually in uh, angelic beings as we normally know them to be. As if each church has some kind of guardian angel looking over them. I say that because the letter to each church is addressed to an angel. And it's addressed to the angel as if the angel is part 
of the congregation. So, uh, for instance, verse 14 of chapter 3, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. And so it's addressed to them, and therefore if, it is, if they are part of the congregation, they are part of the assessment, and they're part of the judgment, or they're part of the commendation that Jesus makes. So, for example, notice what Jesus says, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and then he says the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, write what? Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patience endurance. And it would seem to include the angel as well, the this being, or whoever it is, as in the church. And whatever is said is written to the angel in the church. So who are the angels? Well, I think they're just probably messengers, individuals who have some kind of authority in the local church, in these locations. They are either designated with that authority or delegated with that authority, and they deliver, they're asked to deliver, the message that John is writing to the churches. So, the seven churches are uh, unique in and of themselves. Because, for instance, there's a church or churches down the road from us. They are not us. They are themselves. They are distinct from us. When Jesus makes an assessment of Ephesus or an assessment of Laodicea, separated by not too great a distance, those assessments are different. And Jesus looks at each individual church. So when you look at the seven churches, let me give you an outline briefly. They fall into three distinct groups. The first group, two churches are in very serious trouble. The church at Sardis and the church at Laodicea. All in chapter 3, chapter 3, 1 through 6, chapter 3, 14 through 22. They are in serious trouble. Secondly, two churches receive no rebuke. Boy, I'd like to know about those churches, right? I read about one of them, church at Smyrna, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and also in chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia. These are two churches, no condemnation by Jesus. Just commendation. It would serve us to pay attention to Smyrna and Philadelphia. The other remaining churches, three of them, of course, are simply what we probably would find in every church today, a mixture of faithfulness and a mixture of compromise. And those churches, the three churches remaining, Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12, 17, Thyatira, chapter 2, 18 through 29, and of course Ephesus at the beginning, chapter 2, 1 through 7. Why does Jesus write to them? Why does he want John to write to them? There is a central theme to all of the letters. It is simply this. Be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a threatening pagan culture. Now listen, let's remind ourselves, seven churches are in ancient Rome. Nero is on the throne. He's not a good man. He's a dangerous man. He's dangerous to the churches to the witness of, uh, witnesses of Christ. These seven churches live in a pagan culture. We live in a pagan culture. In fact, we live in an increasingly pagan culture. Not only that, but we live in a threatening 
pagan culture all around us. And it's becoming even more so, isn't it? It is precisely because of the pagan culture, its increase in its idolatry and immorality, which we see all around us in the world today, that a church is required to be faithful in the midst of whatever may come your way from the culture, from the world. Now let me say this, nowhere in the seven churches does Jesus offer a political solution. Not one reference is made to finding help or solution from Rome. You can go to Nero all you like. You can go to the senators of Rome. They are anti-Christ. They are anti-God. There's no love from the Roman world for the Christian church, for the seven churches. So Jesus does not offer them a political solution. One of the great tragedies of our time is that we seek political solutions to our sufferings. And nobody seems to realize that. We just make recourse straight to the political system to help us get out of our trials and tribulations. No getting out of trials and tribulations here for the seven churches from Rome. Don't go to Rome, says F. Jesus is saying. Come to me for the solution. I'll tell you what is needed for you as a church. Some of you, Jesus says, are going to suffer tribulation. And you're going to be thrown into jail. And some of you are going to be killed, he says. No solution from Rome. Don't go there. What do we do? We go there. Because we have rights. Romans have rights. The Ephesians, the, the Thyatirans are Roman citizens. They have rights. Jesus says nothing to them. Find your solution from Rome. No way. We need to remember that. Because I think so many people have forgotten that. And it's a danger to us. Because the danger is you face compromise when you talk to the world. Watch out. This is what Jesus is saying there. In fact, everything Jesus says to the seven churches is spiritual in nature, spiritual in content, and spiritual in solution. And frankly, that's what applies to my own life and to your life as a Christian. The solution to your life is spiritual in nature. Spiritual in content and spiritual in solution. So, as the church is attacked by the world, and it has always been attacked by the world, the solution is not compromise with the world, but courage in the face of the world. The solution is don't contaminate yourself, but cleanse yourself. Come out from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord and I will be God to you, and you shall be my people. You will be set apart. You will be distinct. Now I know we must not give in today to gender identity compromise. Whatever those theories are, when they're shoved down your throat, don't compromise. Because that's what an increasingly pagan culture throws at us. And by the way, if you think it's bad, it's going to get worse. There's more stuff coming, right? Jesus says to the seven churches, like he would say to us, don't compromise yourself with that stuff. In other words, you must refuse social theories that are based on race and the color of a person's skin or their nationalities, whatever it might be. Because any compromise, any contamination must always be repented of. 
And these churches in Asia Minor are trying to live their Christian lives. Boys and girls, moms and dads, old people, young people, together in a church trying to handle the church's assault upon, I mean the world's assault upon them as a church. And that's what the devil does. And the system does. It assaults us. You will not find solution in the system. You will never find it. You find it in Christ. And only in Jesus. There's an interesting word in the seven churches that Jesus uses. It's the word repent. So for instance, look at chapter 2 verse 5. To the Ephesians he says, Remember, chapter 2 verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, what is the problem in Ephesus, right? Verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at the first. What's the solution? He doesn't say to them, return to your love. He says, return to your works, because your works truly will demonstrate whether you love me. If you love me, Jesus says, keep, do, obey my word. That's his word to Ephesus. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at the first. Repent, he says. Look at verse 16, chapter 2. To Pergamum. Therefore, repent. Why? Because you have people there who hold the strange ideas of the Nicolaitans, which we'll consider another time. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, those who are not repenting of their strange ideas. I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth, which you can read about in, verse, in chapter 1 in the description of Jesus. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. Thyatira, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. So the immorality that's going on in the church at Thyatira, they're not repenting of. I gave them time to repent, Jesus says. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. To those in Sardis. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Some hard words to the church in Sardis. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. To the Laodiceans. Therefore, or those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous. And what? Repent. Repent. So here's Jesus saying to the seven churches, when I make an assessment of you, you should know that I know you, I know what you do, I know what you like, I know everything about your spiritual condition, and when I tell you to repent, that's what you need to do. Because if you don't repent, I'm going to come. And he talks about the various kinds of judgments that he will render and bring with him. Now, let me say a word a little bit about the layout, right? The structure of the seven messages that we have here. Number one, each church or every church is addressed by Jesus. Says the words of him. The words of him. So, for instance, Look at chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him. 
So these are the words of Jesus to each individual church. And then there's a description which measures up with the description of chapter 1, the vision that John has of the Son of God, the Son of Man. And so the words of Him and then the description. Every church is addressed like that, with a different description, but the words of Jesus. That's the first thing. Second, will you notice that the first thing Jesus says, at least to five churches, I know your works. So you can see that, chapter 2, to the Ephesians. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance, and so on. Chapter 2, verse 19, to the Thyatirans. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. Isn't that an incredible description by Jesus? And then he goes on to condemn them because they're tolerating certain things. So there's good within the church and there's evil within the church and he asks them to deal with the evil. I know what you like, he says. Look at chapter 3, verse, verse uh, 1. The word, sorry, yes, chapter 3, verse, verse 1. I know your works to Sardis. Middle of the verse. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, I, I, you know, when I look at that, I think, well, maybe when people look at the church at Sardis, they think, wow, what a great church. They, they've got a reputation of being alive spiritually. Jesus comes along and says, you're dead. You're dead. So they're doing all these things, whatever it is, right? I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead spiritually, he says. Isn't that, can that not be true of ourselves? You have a reputation of being a Christian? But Jesus might come along and say, you're dead. You think you have life, but you're dead. You see, this is a very serious appraisal, assessment by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, to five churches, I know your works, I know your works. But two churches are different. The church in Pergamum, look at chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Think about that. That here Satan dwells, and they are trying to bear witness for Jesus. And then Smyrna, of course, in chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty and the slander of those who say they're Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know what you're suffering, Jesus says. So now, when Jesus makes an assessment of the seven churches, how's he doing it? He's doing it on his knowledge, right? I know your works. So he's assessing them based on his knowledge of them. So his spiritual assessment, appraisal, inspection, examination, testing of all of the churches is based on what he knows about them. Now let me ask you, what kind of knowledge does Jesus have? He has perfect knowledge. He has sovereign knowledge. He has supreme knowledge. He knows every single thing there is. In other words, Jesus is omniscient. That means he knows everything about us. Not just as individuals, but as a church. He knows your life inside and out. He knows what you hide from him. He sees it. The blazing sun shines upon it. He knows what you tuck away. Nobody must know. 
He knows that you want to have a reputation among others as a fine, upstanding Christian, but He knows your heart. He knows your mind. Jesus knows everything there is to know about us, about His church, about His Christians, His people. I mean, think of the Gospels, right? How people were thinking things, and Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were thinking. I mean, a thought comes into your mind and goes out of your mind, perhaps. In an instant, Jesus says, I got it. I knew it before it even came into your mind. Perfect knowledge, right? So, Jesus says to the Apostle John, when he reveals himself in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, I am the first, and I am the last. And that, of course, is taken from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 44, where God says to the nation through Isaiah the prophet, thus says the Lord, I am the first and the last, besides me there is no God. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the first and the last, besides me, no God. I am God. That's what he's saying. How else can he have perfect knowledge? Be omniscient. And Revelation 22 and verse 13 in the last chapter says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's Jesus. Now, if Jesus knows everything there is to know about an individual church like Ephesus or Smyrna, then he knows everything there is to know about everyone in the church. Because he discriminates about those who are faithful and those who are compromising. He identifies those who are giving in to certain things and those who are holding fast. He knows the individuals that make up the church. Jesus doesn't have just some of the facts. He has all of the facts. All of them. And that makes his assessment absolutely true every time. So, there's no place to hide in a church and there's no room for excuse in a church because we're all under the assessment of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's based on his knowledge that Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 gives his assessment of these seven churches. So let me give you the assessment. Number one, five churches They receive commendation. He says, there's some things that I commend you for. The only two churches that receive no commendation are Sardis and Laodicea. So, for instance, go back to Ephesus and look at chapter 2. In verse 2, he says to the Ephesians, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and you have found them to be false. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Wow! Commendation. Verse 6, Yet this you have, even you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus says, look at these things. They are good things. I commend you for them. That's the first thing. Five churches commended. Secondly, five churches that receive rebuke. Direct rebuke from Jesus. The only two that don't are Smyrna and Philadelphia. So for example, look at chapter 2 again. Ephesus, verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at the first. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Pergamum. 
but I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Imagine, in the church at Pergamum, some who are promoting idolatry and immorality. Jesus says, no, rebukes them for those things. Number three, all seven churches receive recommendation. So again, look at chapter 2, verse 5. To Ephesus, remember, here's the recommendation, since they have abandoned their first love, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does it mean to remove a lampstand? No more church. Gone. And if you want to go to Ephesus today, Ephesus lies in ruins. Not much of a legacy in modern day Turkey in Ephesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 3, to Sardis. Jesus says, remember, in fact in verse 2, wake up, strengthen what remains. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If not, if you won't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you'll never know at what hour I will come out against you. So, there's a recommendation. This is what you need to do, Sardis. I don't even have a commendation for you, I just have a recommendation for you. Wake up, repent. Number four, five churches are warned of the consequences of being disobedient to what Jesus says except Smyrna and Philadelphia. So, let's look at Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 16. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here's the consequences. You're neither hot nor cold, make up your mind, you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth, Jesus says. Number five, to all the churches, they are all promised reward if they conquer and if they overcome. And I love that part about the overcoming part, right? So for instance, if you look at Philadelphia uh, in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name to the one who conquers to the one who overcomes so that's just a broad aerial view of the revelation 2 and 3 but i want to know how can i look at that for ourselves right how can we assess ourselves if i were to ask you how do we take a spiritual assessment most people might say, well, we need to draw up a list of things and we need to see whether we identify with those things or not. I'm going to suggest to you that's not how we make a spiritual assessment of ourselves as a church. The way we make a spiritual assessment of ourselves is to do it the way Jesus does it in Revelation 2 and 3. How does he do it? Right. First of all, in terms of commendation, what do I mean by that? The things Jesus approves. What he approves of. What does Jesus approve of? Number one, Jesus approves of doctrinal vigilance and endurance. That's what he said to the Ephesians. They are doctrinally sound, but they've left their first love. But if 
Jesus assesses them. He assesses them on what he knows all about them. And one of the good things was they are doctrinally vigilant and they are enduring. That's the first thing. The second thing Jesus approves is that we should endure suffering and persecution or tribulation. That's what he tells the church at Smyrna. Be faithful unto death. Right? Endure suffering and tribulation. Thirdly, we should hold fast the name of Jesus and not deny the faith. Pergamum. Hold fast to Jesus and don't deny the faith ever. Number four, to Thyatira, he tells them to grow in love through service. You want to show your love as a church? Then start serving. That's how we show our love. Number five, Endure patiently and keep the word of God always. That's Philadelphia. That's what they did. So those five things, commendation by Jesus, the things Jesus approved, if you want to make an assessment of a church, that's what you should look at. Are they doctrinally vigilant? Are they enduring suffering and tribulation? Are they holding fast to the name of Jesus? Are they not denying the faith? Are they growing in love through service? And are they enduring patiently? and keeping the Word of God. But, another part of the assessment is to take note of what Jesus rebukes the churches for, or to put it another way, that which He condemns them for. What does He condemn them for? Number one, don't lose your first love. That's Ephesus, right? I have something against you. You have abandoned your first love. Don't do that, Jesus says. Number two, don't believe false teaching and false ideas. That's Pergamum. They've got these strange ideas that they're holding to. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't believe them. Number three, don't lack discernment and tolerate heresy or false ideas. And he says that to the Thyatirans. Be discerning. Right? He rebukes lack of discernment and, lack of t- and, and toleration of false ideas and heresy. Number four, make sure that your works, what you do for Jesus, are really alive. In other words, your motivation is right, your aim, your direction, the reason for doing them is right, your heart is right. He tells the the church at Sardis to be like that. Make sure your works are alive, because if they're not, he rebukes us. Number five, beware of spiritual blindness, and don't be lukewarm in your Christian life. Laodicea. Beware of being blind spiritually and being lukewarm. Now having said that, there are two words that Jesus uses that we should bear in mind when we come to thinking about this kind of assessment. Those two words are simple. And the first one is the word remember, and the second one is the word repent. So, remember, right? So for example, chapter 2 verse 5 to the Ephesians, remember from where you have fallen and repent. The word repent used about eight times to the seven churches. Remember, first word. Repent, second word. Remember what? Remember your first position. Remember when you first believed. How tremendous it was. How gloriously liberating it was to know that your sins were washed away. And then the reality of the world set in, and sin set in again, and you began to struggle with these things. Jesus says, remember your first position. See where you are now. Remember what you have believed and keep the faith. Many people say, I believe. Don't keep the faith. 
Remember what you've believed and keep the faith. In other words, never compromise with what you have believed, the Word of God, the doctrine of the Scriptures. And above all, be loving and be serving. In other words, not just keep your faith, but show your faith. It's one thing to keep the faith. Yeah, I believe, I believe, I believe. But do you show what you believe? Show your faith. And by the way, if sin is ever an issue, what should you do with it? Repent. Confess. And get rid of it. And move on. So let's always remember that Jesus knows His church. His churches. And He knows believers in the churches. He knows your labor. He knows your love. So put yourself to the test. Here's a test for you. Three things. Number one, are you actually in the faith? Are you in the faith? Are you actually a Christian? Have you actually believed the gospel? Have you actually bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you gotten down in your closet, in your room, in your study, wherever it is, and gotten down before Him and said, I repent. I'm a sinner, and, I've been, and I'm broken by my sin and my guilt, and you're right. Are you in the faith? you believe the gospel? Secondly, do you keep the faith? Do you keep it? Is it increasing in your life a treasure to you? I believe this, and now I'm just, I want, to, want more of it. I want to keep it. I want to know more of it. And number three, do you show it? Do you show your faith? So are you in the faith? And do you keep the faith? And do you show the faith? And number four, above all, I said three things, but here's the fourth one. Do you love Jesus above all things? Because Jesus said, if you love anything else, mother, father, possessions, home, whatever it is, above me, you cannot be my disciple. Or to put it another way, you're not my disciple. Isn't that the ultimate test? Do you love Jesus? Because you see what flows from loving Jesus Christ is loving brothers and sisters and others, even enemies of the gospel. Even Nero on the throne. So much so that the Apostle Paul could write to the Philippians, many of Caesar's own household have believed just because he was there in prison sharing the gospel, showing his faith. Because what did he say at the end of his life? I have kept the faith. So, this is what Jesus says. May all of us seek to be like that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word which you've given to us, these incredible words in Revelation 2 and 3, this spiritual assessment by the Lord Jesus Christ of the seven churches, which have implications for ourselves as individual Christians and as a church. And help us in the days and the weeks that lie ahead as we can continue to talk about this great book, to understand the lessons of it and what it means. And we pray, Father, that all of us who have said that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ May we truly keep what we believe and show what we believe. And if there are those here who have no idea about saving faith and about the gospel and the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, then bring them even now under great conviction and give them no rest and give them no peace until they rest in Jesus Christ. So thank you for your word and this time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.